America is a very individualistic society. Mm -hmm. So we place a lot of value on personal success and achieving things on our own. So I believe um, motherhood and family life is not meant to be an individual project. It's meant to be done in community. Bridget Garsh, co-founder of Neighbor Schools and your host for Work Like a Mother, a podcast dedicated to real conversations with incredible women juggling work, life, and motherhood. Today, I'm excited to sit down with Katherine Goldstein. She's a journalist who writes a newsletter about the forces that shape family life in America and also the creator of the Double Shift podcast, which has an amazing back catalog. Once Catherine became a mom, she became acutely aware of how society was failing mothers. She, like so many of us, fell victim to blaming ourselves rather than acknowledging that the challenges that mothers face are societal issues. But then Catherine channeled her journalist skills to stop feeling guilty and start feeling mad. Catherine is a passionate advocate for mothers She uses her platform as a podcast host of the award-winning Double Shift and as a writer to inspire other moms to advocate and take action. I included some links of my favorite pieces of hers in the show notes. If you're looking to get some inspiration or get really fired up, go check them out. One of my best friends just shared a New Yorker cartoon with me that flattened me. It has a picture of a woman sleeping under a huge pile of all these random things. And underneath it says, instead of a weighted blanket, she sleeps under the suffocating weight of her responsibilities. I've linked the cartoon in the show notes and on our social so you can take a look. I can totally relate to this woman in the cartoon. I can't even tell you how many times I've said to myself, just need to buckle down. I need to figure out how to get my shit together and just get everything done. And then when I can't get everything done, I feel like I'm failing and that something must be wrong with me. So when Catherine reminded me that it's not our fault and that we need society and we need infrastructure to have our backs and give us the support that mothers need, I felt that weight of those responsibilities lift just a tiny bit. I'm so excited to be here with you this morning. It's like the best way to start my day chatting (laughs) with you. I, um, my full disclosure, my youngest, I don't know what was going on, but he was up from 1230 until 230 and we had just gone to bed at 1130. So oh, I, I don't know what, like which way is up or down uh, this, this morning, but um, <laughs> you are a breath of energy and I'm, I'm <gasps> excited for our chat. So welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Well, I thought it would be best to start, I guess, at the beginning where you are an award-winning journalist. You're known for being this expert in issues facing working mothers. How did it all start? Where did the passion come from? Yeah, I think um, like so many people, I did not think very deeply about these issues until I became a mother myself. Um, And I think I, I really always considered myself a feminist, but I had like a real feminist reawakening about 
the sort of structural barriers and like deep um, injustices really that mothers face um, once I became a mother myself. And I, um, it definitely started. So my son was born in, my oldest son was born in 20, uh, what year was it? 2015. (laughs) That's where my mind is. What year was it? Uh, It was 2015. And, um, and, you know, I kind of thought like motherhood would be nothing I couldn't handle. Like everything, you know, my career had gone really well. Things in my life were going smoothly. And, you know, the first lesson of parenthood is that you are no longer in control. And, um, you know, he, he actually had some health issues and was hospitalized like twice during my maternity leave. And, um, he's doing great now, but it was like a very traumatic time. And I ended up losing my job when he was six months old. And I sort of had all of these sort of questions, like, who am I anymore? You know, what is like, now that I'm a mom, do I have anything professional to offer? And I started to, and I really felt like a failure. Like I was just like, oh, everybody has this working mom thing figured out except for me. I'm just like personally defective. And as I started to turn my journalistic mind towards issues facing um, mothers in the workplace, I started to realize I was not defective and that so many people felt like failures. And I started to investigate that a lot more. So that's sort of where this all got started for me was very much a personal experience. And, you know, um, over the last several years, I've started to do more research and then, you know, had twins on the eve of the pandemic. So all of this is the personal professional has always been very intertwined for me. I have so many follow-up questions just in what you (laughs) just shared, but I'm going to start with, where do you think this idea of like that all the other moms, like working moms have it together? Like, where does that come from? Because I felt it. I hear it from so many of my friends and yet it's not, it's not like I can't point to one specific thing, but I'm curious to hear your thoughts about like, what do you think contributes to that notion? Yes, there's a bunch of things that contribute to that. First of all, um, America is a very individualistic society. Mm-hmm. So we place a lot of value on personal success and achieving things on our own. So I believe um, motherhood and family life is not meant to be an individual project. It's meant to be done in community. And so when and there's also huge systemic structural barriers in America that make being a parent so difficult. And so we immediately internalize that as personal failures. Like if we can't find childcare, that's because we didn't look hard enough or we didn't get on the wait list early enough. Or, you know, if we um, are struggling in our professional lives, it's not because workplaces are not set up for caregivers. It's because, you know, we, um, you know, it's because we, you know, didn't negotiate with our boss well enough. And if you just, you know, had read that book or done those tips and tricks, your life would be easier. And it's just, that's just not the case. So we have a mentality about person and we take social failures and think they're personal failures. That is a, 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 an American phenomenon, especially, So there's that. And then we, on top of that, we have so many media images of perfect motherhood. We have so much social media about, you know, these, um, I think um, social media has become 
um, really toxic in enforcing ideas of individualism and motherhood and how easy it is to be a mom. And, you know, even when influencers are like, oh, ha ha, things aren't perfect. Like my kid threw a tantrum in Target, but like, look at how beautiful we all look now. And the house is still really put together. Like it, I think also reinforces isolation. Um, and so those are some of the big things. And I think, um, uh, you know, to me, those are really big factors. And also we just, our communities are not very strong. Like we don't have enough time and energy and social support to devote to our friendships and community to really understand the changes that people go through, through motherhood. And then also just like, you know, what, um, what the real situation is having those intimate and honest and authentic conversations with people we trust, not just like influencers or, you know, people who write books. Yeah. Well, and there's so much of this notion of like what I hear all the time is, oh, if I could only just figure it out, like to exactly what you're saying about internalizing and making it about me and what I must be doing wrong. It's all about, well, if I, if I just make it through this, I'll figure out how that's going to work. And, and, and therefore then I'll be fine. Right. Like moving forward rather. Right. We've as Americans, we really buy into the life hack solutions, it's much easier to tell someone if you just use this lunch packing strategy, or if you just get up at 5am, your life's going to work. Right. Um, And that's an easier way to sell people on, you know, rather than saying like, no, you need to get angry and create a community of people who are going to address a systemic issue for five to 10 years. Like that doesn't feel like, how do I get through tomorrow? (laughs) You know, but that's really what the solutions are. Yeah. Well, I, it reminds me of the piece that you did on, um, for the guardian, which was, you know, and I quote American moms need to stop feeling guilty and start feeling mad. Um, there's, there's a lot we could be angry about at this moment. Like what's top of your list. And, and can you tell us where that article came from? Yes. I wrote this article for the guardian in the before times back in 2018 And it still feels very relevant today. And yeah, I think the thing that I'm really wanting people to, I think people are really tired. They're really burnt out. People are dealing with the long-term effects of nearly two years of a pandemic. People have a lot of mental health issues. People are grieving. Um, So, you know, a lot of people need to focus on getting themselves in a better place. But I do think there are people who are, ready to take action and to use their feelings and energy to try to make positive change. And I think what I'm really thinking a lot about and, and, you know, hoping that as we, as mothers and caregivers in the society, like don't forget what we have just been through and just sort of say, you know, we were talking a minute ago about the horrors of virtual school um, before we started the interview. And like, I don't want people to forget that we went through that. And like, why just going back to the 2019 status quo isn't okay. Like we need to make things substantially better than they were before the pandemic. And it's, it's okay to take a breather, but at the same time, like the public school situation in this country uh, is still, um, there's so many problems. There's so many, there's so, uh, there's going to be so much heightened inequality. Um, you know, obviously the childcare industry is in free fall in total crisis. Um, 
we are fighting tooth and nail for the most basic um, sort of embarrassingly small amount of paid leave. Like there's a lot of work to do and I don't want people to just um, feel like, like, oh my gosh, I finally have childcare. Um, so I can just forget about everything I've been through. Like as a country, we love for people to forget about what they've been through and not to account for it. And I think mothers, especially it's our job to hold people with powers feet to the fire about what needs to change. Well, I love in that piece specifically too, you talk about like the, the individual benefits of being angry instead of feeling guilty. Can you share a little bit more around like the, the different parts of the brain and how that has an impact on our own emotions and our own ability to be resilient and cope? Yeah. So, um, I, I found it really interesting research, um, that guilt and anger operate in different parts of the brain. So, um, guilt is considered a withdrawal emotion. It makes you want to feel small to hide, to sort of, um, you know, not challenge anything. Um, it's an, it's a way to sort of internalize things and anger is an approach motivation, which makes you more likely to want to move towards challenges, be activated and, um, you know, make things happen. So guilt very much is an emotion that protects the status quo. Guilt does not um, sort of, in, it helps us internalize everything and not speak up. Anger, anger pe angry people organize, angry people go to protests, angry people challenge their employers, angry people form unions, um, angry people like demand change in their personal relationships. So, um, I just think that anger, you know, anger, of course, can burn people out and can be a destructive emotion, but anger has a lot of potential for to be an, an emotion of change. Like an expert that I um, quoted on this matter says, like, you know, you can't organize a group of victims. You have like in order to organize people, there have to be sort of, you know, ready to take action. And so that's why I, I think anger is an emotion that a lot of people are uncomfortable with, especially mothers. Mothers are not comfortable expressing anger, especially on behalf of themselves. But it's actually something that I think the world would be a lot better place if we got in touch with that more. Well, and that that forward momentum or taking action also makes us more optimistic for the future, right? Like we're thinking, well, I'm doing something. So therefore I could affect change versus just with withdrawing into ourselves. Yeah. And, and people forget like, you know, going to like protests are fun. Like, you know, doing things with people are fun. Like there's joy in coming together and, you know, being in community. And sometimes it feels like, oh God, just one more thing I have to do. But I think that there can be a lot of, um, not, it's not just a to-do list item. There can be a lot of uh, social and emotional joy from coming together to try to make things better. Well, and for a mom who is fired up and ready to take action, myself included, what, what can we do next? So um, I am very interested in, uh, there's a new uh, coalition um, that has recently formed called the Chamber of Mothers that is all about um, uh, sort of the idea that mothers should be an advocacy group 
like the Chamber of Commerce or like we should be a voting block and an economic block that is as powerful as, you know, business lobbies or whatever. And it's a relatively new group and their first effort is to make sure paid family leave is included and passed in the Build Back Better Act, which is, you know, we're recording this in mid-December. Who knows? Who knows what will happen between now and when this airs? But I love this idea of mothers as a political and economic force. So that's a group that is new and is, you know, if I think that it's very open to people being involved with them. Um, So uh, they have an Instagram presence and a website. So I'm very interested in watching where that goes. Um, And I also think it's really important to tap into like, what is it, you know, we can't all be lobbying our senators all the time. You know, we, we can't, it's important to, for people to pick issues that are meaningful to you. And it doesn't, any, anything is big, any small thing is big. And so I don't feel like people should say there's so many big problems. You know, I probably only have an hour a month to devote to a cause that's important to me. That doesn't even matter. Like it does matter. So, you know, what is it at your local, level that's important to you? Do you want to get involved with a school issue? Do you want to get involved with, you know, advocating for better bus driver pay in your state? Um, Do you want to get involved with, um, you know, some neighborhood efforts or universal pre-K in your, um, you know, county getting that on a ballot initiative? Like there's a lot of things that are um, meaningful on the local level and coming together with people in community, you know, maybe it's just working at a soup. I don't even want to say just, maybe you want to volunteer once a month at a soup kitchen. That is meaningful. And it's not about a hierarchy or comparison. It's about what you can do and what inspires you and what you're passionate about and what you have time for. And everything matters. I love that. You're firing me up this morning and, <laughs> and making me ready and, and making me think about it differently too, right? Like I definitely can fall victim to that mindset of I have so little time, will it actually make a difference? And how how to even think through what are the priorities and make the decision and and the choice um, about what's important to to me as an individual, as a mother, um, and as a community member, and and then dedicate my like time and energy to that. Absolutely. And of course, you know, if we aren't nurturing ourselves and if we're spreading ourselves too thin, we can't do any of these things. So that is another really important thing that it's not about, again, adding another thing to the to-do list. It's about, you know, saying no to things on the to-do list. So you are able to recharge enough to even think about this, you know? And so that I think creating your own personal boundaries to help set your priorities is a, is a holistic, you know, conversation in your life. Um, rebal- if you have a partner rebalancing distribution of labor with your partner or, you know, letting go of things that you think are socially expected of you that are not, bringing you joy or creating much value in your family. Um, All these things are intertwined. Um, And so when you let go of some things or say no to some things, like maybe you do feel like you have time to go to the stream restoration project that you think is really cool and you get to meet some interesting people and you then have them over for potluck. Like that's how you build community, but you building community takes what it, what in capitalism is our most valuable asset, which is time. 
So there's no way around that community building takes time. Well, we've talked a little bit about some of your work writing, but you are multi-channel, multi-faceted, and you also have a podcast uh, called The Double Shift. Can you tell us about your inspiration for starting that? Yeah, so I started um, developing that show in 2018, and it launched 2018 was a very big year, it seems like. Yeah, I guess I, um, I mean, all of this was been percolating. And so 2019 is when the show, 2019 was when the show started. And, um, and basically, you know, I wanted to tell stories of what I termed at the time working mothers, um, you know, their experiences and identities separate from parenting and, um, people, it was really interesting because when I was pitching that show and trying to get, you know, big networks interested in it, like people didn't understand that mothers could have an identity beyond parenting. Like I would explain what the show is about and they're like, I don't get it. What is it about if it's not about parenting? I'm like, no, it's about the mother themselves and all the things they're thinking about in their lives. And they're like, I don't, I still don't get it. <laughs> so I feel like the conversation has evolved a lot since then. And I think we're, you know, the idea of um, talking about social and economic issues facing mothers was considered like really far out in niche <laughs> a couple mm-hmm. years ago. And now, you know, front page, you know, business section of the New York Times is talking about child care's infrastructure. So things have definitely evolved and the pandemic has really shown a big spotlight on why so many of these issues are not like niche mother's issues. Um But yeah, so the show has evolved over the last couple of years and, um, you know, I hope to just continue, you know, we now, our tagline is now challenging the status quo of motherhood. I actually no longer use the term working mother because I think um, it creates artificial barriers between people who work for pay and people who do not. Although employed mothers do have really specific um, needs and experiences, I think that working is like not the correct term because I think all care work and all work that mothers do is work. So um, we now, uh, so, you know, we, we talk about everything from, you know, people who have, who actually listened to the show and then advocated and got better paid family leave at our work, at their workplaces. That was the episode we ended on, but we've also talked about mental health, the, um, you know, processing grief with an indigenous motherhood activist, um, telling stories about the economic hardships of COVID. Um, so we, we kind of, we're very multifaceted and I co-host with the amazing, um, Angela Garbez, who's an author and any topic is, is, uh, is game for us. So I think we're really casting a wide net. I want to talk about your journey to motherhood. Like what was your journey? You also have twins at the start of the pandemic. Like tell, tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah. So I thought the biggest like curveball of 2020 was going to be having twins. (laughs) So, um, twins were not like twins were really unexpected. And, um, you know, my husband and I, thought we, uh, we felt like we were, you know, we wanted to have a second child and, you know, if whatever, it didn't happen, that would be fine. We could be happy with one. And then we found out we were having two. Um, and so 
Um, that, you know, I think I'm still sort of, so they were born February 12th, 2020. So obviously really right before everything sort of imploded, exploded. And, um, you know, I think I'm still honestly, you know, emotionally processing what this whole experience has been like. I think having a four and a half year old who suddenly was out of school was a really dramatic and hard um, experience. But I think, um, you know, part of, you know, leading up to having twins, I was really invested in the idea of, you know, raising kids in community and that we couldn't do this Mm -hmm. alone. And that this was about being vulnerable and accepting help and asking people for help and, you know, strengthening our ties with people and, you know, reciprocating that in various ways in the short and long term. And so obviously all of that was turned on its head in, in COVID because everyone was figuring out how we be in community and how we support people if we're not going to spend time with them physically. And um, obviously it was incredibly overwhelming and challenging time, but I think I, my takeaway definitely has like further has created like further resolve for um, you know, why we aren't meant to raise kids in isolation. And and I do see, you know, my oldest son is now fully vaccinated and obviously we don't know exactly how this pandemic ends or when it becomes endemic, but I do feel like I'm seeing, um, you know, the ability to have stronger community ties. And I do think we invested more in fewer relationships. I've heard that from a lot of people. So mm-hmm. you can't, in the pandemic, it was hard to just keep up with a lot of acquaintances, but it was possible to invest, you know, go for walks with friends who live close by or, you know, drop off meals and things like that. And I think that that is actually a, a good takeaway going forward is how, how do we invest more in fewer relationships? Yeah, well, and I think there's so much too about, you know, the impact on our kids and their connection to community. I know. So I had my youngest in April 2020. And so he has lived this like completely isolated life. Um, And just, I think it was last weekend or the weekend before, we actually took him to a museum for the first time. We took him to the Museum of Natural History. And it was so wild to see his reaction. Every yeah. single little kid he saw, and he's in daycare, so he has his little cohort, but every kid he saw, he tried to hug them. <laughs> and it was this beautiful reminder, though, of I've been so stressed thinking, is he going to be super sheltered? Like, is is the the sort of isolation going to have an impact on how he sees and approaches the world? And is he going to see it as fearful and scary? And, but even in those, that tiny moment, he's embracing, you know, community and people and seeking other people out, even though that hasn't been a part of his life for, oh my goodness, you know, 20 some odd months. Right. Yeah. I do think, you know, especially our, all children, but especially our youngest are living in, uh, really, um, sort of diabolically designed social, um, social experiment. And, uh, you know, we don't know what the impacts are, but I do think that, uh, it is really interesting also to see firsts at older ages because you kind of sort of, there's a different, a different sense of joy and wonder than, Mm -hmm. um, 
for, for kids who are experiencing firsts and new ways when they're older than they might have been otherwise. And um, I don't think that's necessarily all bad. And I do think that it does sort of remind us that so much of what we think of as like necessary for young children may not be, but, you know, having stable, a stable home and strong connections to caregivers and, you know, a safe place to live. And those things are really important. Um, And, but, you know, not necessarily all the hustle and bustle that we are part of our modern life that may not be as important as, as modern parents has, have been led to believe in terms of child development. Yeah. Well, and one of one, I forget which, which of your articles it's in, but this idea and the expectation too, that like as parents, you need to be creating all of these quote unquote enrichment opportunities constantly. And basically I love your example too, of like the interactive TV watching where you're supposed to be (laughs) sitting there with them and like talking to them about everything they're seeing. Um, but (laughs) <laughs> it flips that on its head, right? Like in this moment, this was truly special. This is a, an outing we haven't done in 21 months. And it it made it feel so much larger and bigger too as this really special occasion instead of just like, oh, here we are on the treadmill of, you know, yeah, next enrichment, next, next yeah, activity. Yeah, we have four activities planned this week and, you know, everything is just hustle and bustle. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. I think, um, you know, I hope that um, coming out of the the kind of social isolation that parents don't then feel compelled to sort of overcompensate with more activities for everything they've missed for the last two years. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I hope that we can hold on to a slower pace of life. And I, I, you know, I think there's evidence either way. Like I do think people are itching to do things and kids are itching to do things, but at the same time, you know, not sort of overcompensating with an overscheduled life. And I, you know, the way like kids activities dominate family life is like a huge pet peeve of mine. So, um, or also like a, uh, something I now with three children, I'm a fight I'm going to be waging for the next like 15 years. But, um, yeah, I mean, I think that is, it's important to just not feel like we have to sort of go back to all of our previous social norms or overcompensate in those ways. Like I, I definitely think this should be a time of reflection about those issues. Definitely a hundred percent. Well, I have so enjoyed talking with you today. Thank you for sharing so many uh, thoughtful reflections, perspectives, and really making me and, and, and all of us think I have a few rapid fire questions for you before Great. we we sign off. What is one piece of mom gear you can't live without? When I was, um, since I know you have a lot of like new moms, mm-hmm. uh, maybe who are listening, when I was breastfeeding, I was a humongous fan of the Medilla Freestyle portable pump where you can... Um, it is one, it's like a little bit bigger. It's like a size of a remote control and you can like walk around with it. Really big fan of that. So I, after that, I was like, I could never just be sit sitting tethered to a pump because that does not work when you have three kids, including twins. (laughs) So big fan of the portable pumps. What's on your nightstand right now? Um, 
I'm reading this really demented novel called Parakeet. I'm also reading, I, I, I have a couple of books going. I'm also reading um, Anne Marie's Slaughter's new book. Who do you love to follow on Instagram? Mm. Or Twitter or any of the social yeah. platforms. Um, there is a maternal fetal medicine doctor call whose handle is babies after 35, who I think gives really great science-based guidance, which is really important for new and expecting moms. And she also has great information also about the importance of getting vaccinated, um, when you're pregnant and, you know, taking on a lot of wellness and health experts, I'm using quotes, um, who are, you know, push non-science based stuff for pregnant women. So she's really great. Babies after 35. Oh, I love that. As someone who's also had her babies after 35, that (laughs) really resonates. Um, all right. I feel like you're going to have a visceral reaction to this question. Oh, good. What's one, one mom hack that makes your life easier? Oh no. I reject the premise of the question. I know that's what I was just <laughs> You're thinking. like, uh-oh, I got to like, leave this out for her. <laughs> we have joint uh, list, a list app that me and my husband use. And we also, also our caregiver has access to it. Um, it's called uh, Tick Tick. And I use that a lot. And we use that for groceries and other like to-dos and stuff. So I would say in terms of something that is actually simple that and useful that I enjoy, I would say that. I also really like the New York Times cooking app. Mm. <laughs> so, but TikTok is the probably the most like family life management app that I use. Also, oh, I have another one. The business meeting. My husband and I have business meetings where we talk about family and financial business. And I highly recommend this because it's really hard to just have a constant drip of conversation on those topics. So we save them for the business meeting. We have the family meeting. So very, very similar. And it's also super freeing to like, we have a running agenda with all different topics and during the week to be like, it's 1030 at night. I don't want to talk about this right now, but I also don't want to lose the idea. Yes, exactly. We'll put it in family meeting. Well, thank you so, so much for joining us, for being on work like a mother. Um, We're so happy to have you. All right. Thanks so much. I enjoyed being on the show. Work like a mother is produced by neighbor schools. Neighbor Schools is a startup in Boston that I co-founded in 2018 to help parents find daycare. As a first-time parent, finding childcare can feel scary and intimidating. At Neighbor Schools, we help you find daycare you'll feel really good about so you can go back to work with the peace of mind that your little one is getting the socialization, support, and stimulation they need to learn and grow. We've helped thousands of moms and dads figure out the daycare search. Check us out at neighborschools.com. And when you get in touch, mention that you discovered us on the podcast. Thanks for joining me today. We'll see you next time.